I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. We're leaving that in. Gavin Riley has oh, well. Carousel right, Podcast. Well. Okay. Oh my God, I thought it would be me. After would the watershed. Bring it on. Incredible. <laughs> Hello, you're very welcome along to this week's episode of the Group Chat Podcast. I'm news correspondent Zara King, joined in studio by my fellow news correspondent Richard Chambers. Zara, how's it going? Uh, Gavin will be with us after the break, but in the meantime, in Gavin's chair, we're joined by Courts correspondent Deborah Naylor. Hi, guys. Hi, Deb. You it's your first time on the Group Chat. It is. <laughs> we're delighted. Court today. Deborah, you've had such a busy week, and we're going to get to some of that in a second. But in the meantime, Jerry the Monkutch has been spotted out in Dublin. Uh, he's had a haircut since he walked free from court about four. 48 hours ago now and um, it was a three-month trial you sat through all of it Debs um first of all the verdict maybe just take us through what happened the other day yeah I mean it was one of those days that I mean you know extraordinary <laughs> dramatic yeah. mm. those words always get bandied about but it really was one of those days in court which I think a lot of people uh, won't forget for some time and this verdict obviously had been awaited for a number of months because we heard the closing arguments in this case back in February. It's over seven years since the Regency Hotel attack. So it was a long time coming this verdict, waiting for it a long time. Jared Hutch was, of course, in custody. Uh, we didn't know how it was actually going to go on Monday. Um, it's not always clear where the judges are going to start. There was obviously three people in the dock during this trial, but it did become clear quite soon that the judges were first going to deal with the cases of of Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy, who were both convicted of facilitating the attack. And it wasn't until the afternoon that we got to the verdict of Jared Hutch. And I think it was very clear from the outset of the ruling exactly uh, where the ruling was going, because the judges specifically said in their opening statement that it wasn't a case uh, that Jared Hutch planned the Regency, but was not present. But the state's case was that he was actually at the scene and that he was one of the shooters. So that's how they began. And I think that was a big indication of of where the judgment would ultimately end. Mm. But when it came in, uh, it was about 90 minutes. Ms. Justice Tara Burns delivered it in its entirety, a really lengthy ruling. She went through all of the evidence, read out the entire thing. And then we had that dramatic conclusion where he was found not guilty of murder, directed his immediate release. Half an hour later, he walks out the front door of the court. Yeah. It was and extraordinary. Like yeah. The word extraordinary was used so much in the last couple of days, but it really was an extraordinary scene. You were right in the thick of it there mm. as he came down the steps and he was looking for the taxi uh, on the way out. What, what what goes through your mind when you're in, in the middle of that? Because that, that was uh, that was frenetic level chaos, that was. Yeah. It, was. it was. Listen, it was very chaotic. Um, I think... You, well, we didn't know for a start if he was going to come out the front door mm. or the side door. So you never know in these cases. And I mean, how often do we see people acquitted? All the time I've been in court, I've seen one acquittal, uh, one murder acquittal in that time. It's, really it's, it's not a common thing. Mm. Um, so everyone, and of course, this is 
someone who's a very high profile individual. We heard that he was going to walk out the door of the court and um, didn't know if that was going to be the side entrance. So you could see from the pictures, there was photographers and camera crews covering both. It was actually Ashley McNichol, our colleague who was down there with me that day. And she called me. And she's like, we heard he's coming out the front door. So um, myself and Alvaro, our cameraman, we legged it around the front, waiting a couple of minutes. And I mean, it was just an absolute, it was a mob. I mean, at first, couldn't even get near Dirt Touch. I could see our cameraman, Alan Fraser, was in the thick of it. And I'm not going to lie, I had a moment of going, I do not want to be sprinting and being in the background of like all this footage. Not a pretty place to be like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. you can see, I could see all the camera crews there and it's never a good look if you're you're running around and you're caught off guard. But at the same time, I was like, you know, I need to do my job and I wanted to get a question in. And And there was a point. He did get many questions in, but he said nothing, did he? He he said nothing. He, Mm. He politely declined to talk to anyone. But I mean, it was just the most maddest scenario because he was, he came down the steps, he walked around the corner up towards Infirmary Road. He was trying Mm. to get um, a taxi. And then there was this individual who I'm sure you've um, seen him since or you saw him in the footage that day. No one's actually quite clear who that man was. If he was a relative of Mr. Hutch's. This is the man he... who kept telling the media, leave, leave Jerry exactly. alone. Exactly. Yeah. Leave him alone. Leave so him alone. no one knew if he was actually um, with him or did he just turn up at that point? You had people shouting out cars, congratulations, Jerry. Heard loads of people say that. But he was just almost walking up and then he'd walk back down the street and this was going round in circles for a while. But yeah, I wanted to make sure that we got one question in because I didn't actually know at that point if he had said anything or if Mm. he was going to talk to anyone. But eventually he, uh, yeah, he got in a taxi and near enough to the Phoenix Park. So I'd say that was a very interesting journey. (laughs) Do you think he is going to give an interview, Debs? I know he gave an interview back in 2008, I think. But do you think he'll give an interview now? I think it's very hard to say. Mm. I mean, whether or not he will stay in the country. I will say one thing. During the trial, we did hear a lot from his counsel because if you have to remember what an extraordinary trial this was, but the drama had actually began before the trial even did because it was only 10 days before the Regency trial was meant to get underway that Jonathan Dowdall um, gave a statement to Garthi and that the murder charge against him was dropped and he pleaded guilty to facilitating the Regency attack. And I remember that day because I think I was down at a Garda conference in Kildare or something and then we got word that Jonathan Dowdall was pleading guilty. This was just an extraordinary development in this case. So within one week, we had his sentence hearing. We then heard that he had given a statement to incriminate Jerry Touch. It wasn't clear then if the Regency trial was going to be delayed for months, that, you know, what this development actually meant. But um, Brendan Graham, who represented Mr. Hutch, said that, you know, he wanted this trial to be done in public and that, you know, he said his client was pleading not guilty, that, you know, he was very keen that justice had to be seen to be done. Um, He obviously is now an acquitted man. Whether or not he will want to talk to the media, whether or not he's going to remain in the country, I think, you know, probably the million dollar question. Mm. It is. And I think you alluded to it at the start that there was a feeling that this was going to go in the direction that it ended up going. Some some people I've spoken to are legal sort of legal eagles really around this. They they felt this for a long time mm-hmm. that this was all going in one direction because of the evidence that was provided by Jonathan Dowdall and whether or not that was credible or not. That is kind of a, a, one of the extraordinary outstanding sort of issues of this is that how much the state came to rely on this one man who was effectively decimated in the judgment there by the Supreme Court or the the Special Criminal Court. 
Yeah, I mean, listen, I think it's fair to say the three judges of the Special Criminal Court were absolutely scathing mm. in how they referred to Jonathan Dowdall. You know, they said that his demeanour in the recordings, you know, portrayed him as I think it was a callous based criminal. Um, they effectively said that he was someone whose evidence couldn't be trusted. And of course, Jonathan Dowdall was a very problematic witness, because if you go back to his history, go back to 2016 um, when the guards searched his house after the Regency attack. It was at that point they found a USB stick um, in his house that led of him waterboarding a man that led to him being convicted of false imprisonment, that charge. He spent eight years in prison for that. But it was also in 2016, in May 2016, when he was first arrested in relation to the Regency, that he asked Gardy, was there any way out? Um, you know, could mm. he would he be able to get on to the witness protection programme? It wasn't until 2021 that Jonathan Dowdall was actually charged with murder. And by that point, um, he he was released on bail on the murder charge. And, and as I said, it wasn't 10 days before um, the actual trial began. But, the, you know, the judges referred to the fact that in 2016, that time of when he was actually, when his house was raided, he went on Joe Duffy mm. um, giving out basically saying that his life had been torn apart um, and that he was being someone who was being portrayed as a criminal, but said, you know, he had he had never been involved in any kind of criminality. Mm -hmm. When he was on the stand, he tried to explain that away and kind of say, well, I was never involved in criminality in the sense of making ill-gotten gains. Yeah. But effectively what the judges came to the conclusion, the conclusion they came to was that he, he couldn't be relied on his evidence and mm. um, his character I think it's fair to say they assassinated his character um, in the judgment. You know, they, they annihilated um, his evidence in, in the witness box. They said that he had lied in court. That was in relation to one specific um, time when it was put to him that he had been a friend of Pierce McCauley and he's a man who was convicted of murdering a Garda. Yeah. Uh, he, is, he is in prison and it was put to him that Jonathan Dowdall had visited him and he Jonathan Dowdall, when he was in the stand, said, yeah, I went to see him three or four times. But Brendan Grehan, um, defence counsel, had the prison records there and said, you actually went to visit him 14 times. So the, the court found that he had, he had lied to the court. He had previously lied to another special criminal court. So it had all these issues with him. And it also said that, you know, given everything. So when you put everything together, they said he could not be trusted as a witness. And then you got to his specific testimony and they said that they weren't prepared to accept that on its own because of the nature of the witness he was and that that needed corroborative evidence. Mm. And there wasn't really, I know, like a, the, much was made of the tape, the recording from the car. There really was no admission on that tape from Jerry the Munkoch at all. Yeah, I mean, the prosecution argued there was. They said, you know, that his failure to give any pushback, that Jonathan Dowdall had kind of put it to him in these in these tapes that he was involved in the Regency. But they had said, you know, there was no pushback or denial from mm. Mr. Hutch. Mm. And of course, there was the, the reference to the three yokes, which they said, you know, showed that Mr. Hutch was in control of the weapons um, on March 7th, 2016, the day of this recording, which was only two days before these weapons were intercepted by Gardaí. So it said that he was in control of the weapons used in the Regency. Now, the judges ultimately found that, you know, he was in control of the weapons at that time, but that was not the case against him. The case against him was that he was one of the gunmen and he was present at the Regency that day. Mm. Mm. It's a very difficult thing yeah, to, to, for them to have 
to prove in, in, in total. So that, that, that is one of the questions about as to why the state went down that road in this case. What was Jerry the Monk Hutch's, I mean, he was, he was, he was in court for, for a good deal of this. I mean, what was his demeanour throughout this? Was there an air of confidence about him that this would be something that this would, you know, if he would be acquitted of this? I think that's probably hard to say if yeah. someone thinks they're going to be acquitted or not. I would say he definitely came across as a very calm individual. Um, there wasn't any time where, you know, he's, he actually seemed quite jovial, I would say, in court. Mm. He smiled a lot. He listened. He put on his headphones. He has hearing difficulties. So he was listening, um, you know, through headphones every day to the evidence. But I would not say there was any point during the trial where he appeared to be a man who was under any kind of stress. And he certainly wasn't on Monday. What happens to Jonathan Dowdle now, Debs? Well, actually, it's just been reported today um, in the Irish Times um, that he has now been accepted onto the Witness Protection Programme. Um, that was probably, you know, that was always going to happen. Expected, yeah. Yeah. yeah, he is obviously still serving his sentence for facilitating um, the Regency attack. He was sentenced to four years in prison. Uh, when he is released from prison, he will now be um, flown out of the country to start a new life given a new identity and everything will begin again. Um, I suppose you've covered the courts for a really long time. How do you think this case has compared to the, all the other stuff that you've worked on? I suppose the Regency really, I mean, I was at the Regency the night it happened. We were both working at UTV Ireland, mm-hmm. not that many people remember that channel, but, um, you know, we didn't know at that time, did we, how much of a big impact that that one night would have in terms of how many people died subsequently yeah, afterwards yeah. And, and the impact it had really. Yeah, and I mean, this is why this was such a, a huge trial. That's why it's been dubbed the gangland trial of the century. Mm. Because if you can remember in 2016, the Regency attack actually changed the, the focus of the election at that time from mm-hmm. one that actually, had been yeah. on the economy to crime and security. Yeah. There was huge questions over, you know, why Gardaí weren't there that night. We've obviously had the repercussions since then. It led to, to a major escalation in a gangland feud, which went on to claim um, 18 lives. Mm. Uh, you ha- Since then, you've had dozens and dozens of people before the special criminal courts facing convictions um, arising from the fallout from the feud. Uh, So it just, you know, its significance, I suppose, can't be understated. Um, So it was a long way to trial. It is very difficult, I will say, probably for uh, the family of David Byrne, you know, they, they were walking out of court the other day, you know, looking, I suppose, they wanted to see someone convicted of his murder and and Jared Hutch was acquitted. There was obviously the, the two other convictions for the lesser charge of facilitating uh, the Regency attack. But whether further charges will come down the line in future, well, you know, we just can't say. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're not totally sure this is the last we'll have heard of it. No, I mean, the investigation is still ongoing. Mm. Um, we The court did conclude um, that the Hutch organised crime group orchestrated this attack, that the the Hutch family was behind it. Um, But again, uh, that was not to say that the Hutch family equated to Jared Hutch. And that's what his lawyer said, closing the case. You know, he said one could conclude the Hutch family orchestrated this attack, but you can't tie those things together. Obviously, uh, ultimately, that is you know, the Special Criminal Court judges agreed with this. Uh, They have found that the Hutch family it's likely this attack was orchestrated by them. Uh, it found that Patsy Hutch, uh, that he was, you know, in control of moving the weapons after the attack. Um, but whether or not further charges will come down the line, um, you know, we can't say for sure. OK. Devin Ayler, Quartz Correspondent, thanks so much for joining us in studio. Stay with us because after the break, we're going to be joining Gav in Belfast. 
So Gav now joins us from Belfast. Hey Gav. Hey Zara, how are you? Good, what are you doing in Belfast? Uh, well, as it stands right now, first and foremost, I'm standing about five yards away from your professional idol, Beth Rigby of Sky News, so I'll try not to make it sound like you're spooning too far down the earpiece. Uh, I'm here at Queen's University. You can probably see a little bit of it just over my shoulder. Um, today, the day, yeah. Wednesday, that we're recording this is the final day of a three-day event. Um, isn't it lovely? Yeah, it is. It's a fabulous backdrop. It's exactly what you'd want a university to look like. Um, so this is the, the final day of a three-day um, event to mark the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement. And this is really the, kind of the, the big day of the whole thing because we've got um, Leo Varag has given a keynote speech as is Rishi Sunak uh, the Prime Minister of the UK um, Ursula von der Leyen the um, President of the European Commission and Bill Clinton who of course was President of the United States at the time the Good Friday was was announced and, and all signed off on uh, they're all given keynote speeches and uh, by the time people will have seen this uh, there'll also have been a, a press conference of sorts with Leo Varadkar so anything good that comes out of that will be recorded on the news bulletins but like it's really nice lovely day and like I said it's a, it's a smashing backdrop to be able to, to join you for 25 minutes or so on the podcast Absolutely so Gav there's 10 billion knocking around in government what's happening here 10 billion where where uh, 10 billion in the government's coffers um, there is there's an extraordinary amount of money knocking around so this is a new report which is published by uh, the cabinet on Tuesday it's what they call like strategic medium term review where they basically um, I should apologize but I think that might be Rishi Sunak's silence for his security that are knocking around um, so there's a um, 10 billion euro surplus that's planned uh, in the government's uh, coffers for this year and that's largely as a result of surging corporate re- uh, corporate tax revenue and it's only going to get bigger that basically the government is now projecting that it's likely to have so much corporate tax coming in in the years to come that by the year 2025 or 26 you could be looking at the state running a surplus of about 22 or 23 billion euro like it's an extraordinary amount of money that the government is going to have uh, to play with in some of the budgets uh, in the years to come and that in itself is really significant because if you just think about anything in politics there's always two responses when anyone asks for you to spend any money in politics you go a is it a wise thing to spend your money in that way and b do you actually have the money to begin with and there's now going to be so much money in the government's coffers for the years to come that that whole option B that retort B of we don't have the money basically goes away for everything because if you think about literally anything that's on the government's agenda for the coming years whether it's you know trying to deliver more housing or trying to increase uh, provision of healthcare or education or trying to deal with the cost of living or even tax cuts like nothing is off the table as regards affordability now it's just a question of is it a wise thing to do but it's going to really change all of the natures of debates around politics and current affairs for the next couple of years because there's simply no question of there not being any money to do anything yeah. now it's just a case of can you convince the government that spending money is the right thing to do and Richard we're going to hear from some of our listeners in a couple of minutes about that but I mean that's the thing isn't it like there's so many things that could be done with 10 billion euro they're going to be under enormous pressure to start spending that money they are and I think you've already seen some indications privately from government ministers that you know they're already looking at the next budget as being the, the quote-unquote the giveaway budget where they will start to throw money at things with a view on the next election but given the societal problems that we have seen build up in recent years it does seem quite extraordinary that you would have 10 billion euro in surplus this year 16 billion euro in surplus at the end of next year and you see the amount of problems we've had in housing and the 1 billion euro underspend in terms of capital spending in the Department of Housing. Yeah. And you just wonder how these sums actually, you, how this all adds up. Obviously, a lot of the, the the surplus is down to the tax, which is paid by multinational companies. And there is some level of worry about, well, that's not exactly going to be something you can rely on years into the future. But the sort of the, the talk from government members 
in recent years around, well, we need to save for a rainy day. Mm. The rainy day is is here. We've all been talking about how how, rain how rainy it has been, yeah. how much bucketing of rain it has been in terms of housing and health in particular. Mm. Um, now they are going to be under pressure to spend it. But I think there is one caveat to all of this, is that is when you see the amount of money that has been spent in healthcare in particular over the decades, mm. you can throw as much money at it as you want but it needs to be targeted and it needs to make sense in terms of what you're actually spending it on. Otherwise, you are just going to get headlines in years to come saying, well, why did you just throw billions and billions and billions into the HSE and nothing ever improved? Yeah, and that is that conversation between the difference between sort of just spending money or managing money quite Mm. well and and spending it on the right things. And I say we will come to some of the responses from the listeners in a second, Gavin, because as you say, Richard, actually the majority that came through on the question box, housing and healthcare, housing and healthcare, they are the two key ones for people, aren't they, Gavin, that are the most important? Yeah, which is the tricky thing because if you just take them in that order, firstly, healthcare, as Richard has rightly said, that it's an area which hasn't been short of money in previous years. But the question is, where exactly does the money go? Because you could spend the money on, you know, capital projects like building new uh, primary care facilities or even building new hospitals, and that's all well and good. But if you're having difficulty then filling the staff uh, positions in those areas, then you know, it's not a huge amount of use having a brand new hospital if you can't pay the doctors to go into it. And on the other side, then because of the way that um, healthcare staff are tied to the public sector pay deals, it's very difficult to make an exceptional case for nurses and public health doctors and even to some degree consultants if you're not giving the same pay increases everywhere else in the public sector. So it's a really tricky thing to be able to to sort out the healthcare sector without resulting in pay increases for everyone else, although some people could say that's warranted and that's something we might get back to. And then on the housing situation, well, yes, of course, this is the, the major theme. Like I'm just looking at my Instagram question box right now and people are just saying, you know, build houses, housing, just give me a roof over my head, housing, housing, housing. Like it's such a universal thing. People want the state to build housing but then like we said a few minutes ago look back at the figures for the last couple of years where the government hasn't been able to spend all of the money that it had already set aside on housing now part of that is not just the central government's fault part of that is because the money goes through local authorities and sometimes there's bureaucracy where they don't feel like they can access the money that's set aside other times they don't have the resources to be able to set aside all the money that's been sent their way so it's it's not just as straightforward as putting aside the money and making it happen but the other thing the, the major thing that we have to bear in mind for all of this is because this is all to some degree kind of one-off income and that the, the state's own financial experts are, are advising it that this is income that you ne- can't necessarily rely on to exist every year mm. you have to be careful that if it's one-off income that you spend it on one-off projects that you can't necessarily presume that you're going to have 10 or 15 or 20 or 25 billion in corporate tax revenues every year every because at some year. point mm. some yeah. other tax change is going to come along and, and they're going to go somewhere else so if it's one-off income it has to go on one-off projects which is why you might be more likely to spend it on building houses because that's one off but mm. then again there's well, the bottlenecks in the system of how do you go about doing that do you even have the staff to do it one example of just a one off uh, possibility from Aoife who, who messages in is they could just give all 5 million of us a little bonus for one so they're constantly getting one themselves so Aoife's looking for a couple of uh, euro in her back pocket what do you think of that idea Richard? Uh, it depends on how people would spend it I suppose <laughs> as well I mean I'll, I don't know I'll, I'll just pause uh, Lee about that yeah. I mean one thing I actually was thinking about when, you, when I saw this yesterday about the 10 billion euro surplus is that they have this um there's this concept when you're doing when you're doing a household budget so have you ever heard of the 50 20 30 rule so basically you'd spend 50 yeah. percent of it would go towards needs that's essential stuff 20 yeah. percent you save of what you take in and 30 percent goes to things like that you'd want that are aspirational mm. so say say you put 20 percent of the 10 billion away Right, so that's a fifth of that money goes away. And yeah, the half the money goes on the needs. The needs are obviously housing and, and whatnot. If you look at what actually was spent in terms of housing last year, um, in terms of social, social housing, 4 billion euro. 
you, you have that money again. You could almost double it again. You can double it, You can yeah. double what you spend yeah, on, on social housing. But again, as Gavin is alluding to, it's not just so simple as to say, we have loads of money, watch us spend it, because mm. you need to build houses. And there's obviously been things like objections to housing schemes. But one thing which you could easily do, and it is actually something uh, which some of the opposition TDs who I've been speaking to today, when they obviously saw all of this about, you know, 10 billion euro in surplus, how do we spend it in terms of housing? Vacant properties is a very obvious thing you mm. could do. Um, now, obviously, I'm not speaking as some sort of a housing guru or housing expert, but you with 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 you know even four billion euro, yeah, the amount of properties that you could immediately bring into onto stream as vacants and to do them up and, and get them back up and running, bish bash bosh. Yeah. So that would be something you could do with it. A, a good one-off example. And um, I'll just go through some of the replies you got uh, through the question box. And Gavin, I know you've got a couple there as well. Um, again, houses. Sorry. So Sarah says housing uh, and more electricity support. So I suppose people like acknowledging there, Gav, the the price of the bills there. Um, housing and public infrastructure support, transport. Um, oh yeah, sorry, free transport. We talked about this yesterday on the meeting. Actually, this idea of giving people. Free transport, Gav. Would that be possible? Yeah, well, this is an example of, of the sort of stuff that you can do when the idea of like cash in hand isn't really much of a concern. Now, of course, there is that issue that if you made transport free this year, you'd have to make it free next mm. year and every year afterwards. So it'll be an ongoing expense. But there's government estimates that if you were to try and make everyone who takes public transport right now, if you made their fare zero, it would cost you about half a billion euro. Now, that doesn't allow for the idea that there might be extra demand and the extra vehicles and train carriages and whatnot that you need to provide for. But half a billion euro, in other times people might say well it's half a billion euro we don't have because we need to spend it on other projects suddenly if you're running a surplus of 10 billion euro it's a thing you can at least entertain it's not a case of you don't have the money it's just a case of would it be the right thing to do to, to spend the money on making transport free and then you get into the other areas of well if you make public transport free will people just start taking the bus willy-nilly instead of walking who does when that? it's raining Sorry, that I, I know I just don't buy that yeah. I don't Look, buy that I mean, apparently it happens it happens in some parts of Brussels or it happens in Luxembourg allegedly where if you're walking somewhere and it's raining and the bus is driving by you and the bus is going to the same place that you can just hop onto it and basically it's free I really don't know if it's the sort well, of thing that you should be like denying a full nationwide program on but yeah, exactly. there's I know that we talked about like older people who have bus passes like who can't heat their homes have been riding buses around the city just to stay warm I know that was something that we've talked about before in the podcast but I'm not sure if like you know necessarily everyone would have time to do that so it's, I don't it's know not if that's a mass scale reason for, for, for yeah, not making for, it for free. not doing it but I think the, the, more, the more key issue in terms of public transport uh, rather than the, the you know just making it free for everyone is the fact that it is so poor mm. uh, David McWilliams was talking about this recently about you know the creaking infrastructure in this country for what is a very wealthy country in comparison to other EU countries of similar yeah. skies similar scale uh, yep. similar economic prosperity and it is very poor mm-hmm. um, you know we talk about the metro and how much that's going to cost to build I think that's the credible estimate the government brought up recently was like nine and a half billion mm-hmm. so again kind of fits into the into the range of what we have here lying around but the amount of projects which have been delayed and have been dithered over whether that be you know uh, Dart Underground Metro any of the links around bus connects you know intercity rail around or um, commuter rail around Cork Mm. all of these things which need to be done if you're going to have a proper you know urban basis for people to live and to allow people to commute in without Mm. being stuck in their cars because we're meant to be tackling climate change and there's meant to be a strategy around how you get people out of their cars Mm -hmm. well if you're not going to do something revolutionary in transport well you're not exactly going to have a revolutionary response from the public either no and it's like what you said Gav there about the idea of if you do it this year you know you're going to have to obviously keep it going year after year after year like what about the idea of giving people maybe you know free transport as a sample for a year and then you know maybe 
introducing it again the year after at a reduced cost or something like that that you could sort of open up transport to people and they get used to using it yeah you could do what they did in Germany where they introduced as a temporary thing a 9 euro monthly pass that got you onto all public transport altogether and it was seen by some people as a bit of a disaster because suddenly the trains were packed and then you couldn't get a seat on a train the way they used to where they'd only sell you a certain number of tickets so that they could seat everybody but other people thought it was brilliant they were perfectly happy to take a seat on a floor on a train as long as it was 9 euro to get everywhere you needed to for a month so it's the sort of thing which at least now is open to the government because money isn't really the big impediment in all this stuff because there is one thing that we should probably address before people wonder why we're not addressing it and it's not so much an elephant in the room as a sort of a Celtic Tiger corpse sized thing in the room which is the fact that we've been in similar circumstances like this before where there's been one part of the economy which has yielded so much tax that basically we managed to cut taxes in other places and we thought that we could just rely on that everywhere and that of course is back in the mid noughties where property was, was selling at such a rate that the stamp duty coming in was basically paying for everything and at the time people said well why don't we just cut personal taxes why don't we just lower PAYE we can lower PRSI we can get away with so many other taxes that apply on people's general lives cut VAT and the likes then what happens well suddenly when the sector crashes then you have no tax income and you need to start yeah, you know, hiking it up everywhere else. And that's the sort of fear that you might get into again, that if you decided, because, you know, some people, to be fair, not very many people, but some people have said, you know, the, the taxes on people who are just struggling to get by, why can't you get rid of USC, which was supposed to be a temporary measure all those years ago anyway? Why can't you cut yeah. income taxes? Why can't you cut VAT? Those are things that you, you can do, but if the, the corporation tax was to suddenly dry up, then you'd only have to go back and implement that pain again. And most people now say, well, you should try and keep the tax base as broad as possible so you shouldn't necessarily spend all this extra money that's coming in and you should squirrel it aside for some other rainier day. But that brings us back to where this conversation started. You know, for some people, the rainy day is now. If you can barely mm. afford the bills or if you can't afford a roof over your head, what better time than now to spend this sudden windfall that we didn't think we were going to have? I think absolutely. I think that's totally what's echoed in what we're hearing from people is that the rainy day is now. That's yeah. what people are telling us. I, I, I think two points on what Gavin was saying as well. Like the rainy day fund currently, uh, I think it sits like the reserve in there is about six billion quid. Mm. So if you even even in a scenario where you'd say if the government, if the state wanted to put away even half of what it has at the moment, mm-hmm. that's another five billion into that. That's a yeah. pretty decent reserve to have there if things there was, there was to be some you know massive e- economic upheaval. But as well as that, I do find it quite interesting. I, I don't know the, the full answers as, as I'm not an economist, mm-hmm. but the fact that we consistently or the Department of Finance and the government consistently underestimates what's going to be coming in in tax, whether that be corporation tax or other income taxes, is quite astonishing, really, given the amount of you know people who are in there and who are working on this full time. So, I mean, it must be very difficult to actually plan long term what you can do and the scale of what you can do in response to some of the challenges that you have if you're consistently undervaluing how much money you're going to have around to play around with. Yeah, and when we talk about the rainy day, I suppose people will wonder, what does a rainy day look like, Gav? I mean, for example, when, when COVID hit, was that considered a rainy day did we tap into the fund around that time it's a sort of the sort of thing that was done at the time yes we weren't setting money aside in the rainy day fund we were taking it back out but as it stands as richard's right the rainy day fund has about six billion euro in it now i think legally speaking it's capped between eight and ten billion euros so even right now you'd have to go and change the law to put more money into the rainy day fund so they're talking about now creating a second fund that sits somewhere alongside it which would be some kind of a, a national sovereign wealth fund which is the sort of thing that they did in norway where basically you have the state investing in massive um, assets and that those then bring you in income over time and you can partly pay for public 
public services based on the dividends that you get from some company that you own somewhere else in the world. I mean, one, one person said, why doesn't the state just buy Manchester United? You know, the Minister for Finance, Michael McGrath, is a Man United fan, so is there a prospect now of the Irish taxpayer just stepping in to decide that they want to buy Manchester United and reaping dividends off that? This is the sort of stuff that you now suddenly can't rule out uh, because of the money that the government has. Uh, to go back maybe just for a second to the sort of the political consequences of all of this, like the, the real tricky thing is, even if the government is able to make a credible case that it shouldn't spend the money on certain things, there will always be people saying, well, why not? You know, if the government says we need to keep the money aside for a rainy day or we can't rely on this money so we can't do things over and over again, people will always point to the areas in which there's underinvestment now and say, well, why can't you do this? You know, we, we talked on the podcast a couple of weeks ago about um, disability services for children and one of the issues there is the pay disparity between those who work directly for the HSE and those who work for private sector agencies who are contracted to do some of the services. You could say, without tapping into too much money, that you could offer pay equality between those who work for the HSE and those who work elsewhere and that could, for instance, have a material impact on the lives of of thousands of vulnerable people who really need the state to invest. But you get into this kind of slippery slope argument where the state will say, well if we pay for this, how do we pay for that? And then they will argue that the whole thing then gathers steam or becomes this floodgates argument but which brings us back really to where we started is how are you going to convince people that the right thing to do is not to spend the money and what sort of political consequences are there if we get to a general election in two years time and people say to the outgoing government you had loads of money and you didn't spend it in the way that was going to make a difference in my life and really i wonder whether that's an argument that the government can ever win that no matter what they do with the money there'll be people credibly saying you should have done something else and it's going to be a very very difficult thing for the government to fend off for the next two years mm. A lot to discuss on. I'll just give the final point to Joe, who sent in a message to us, who said, support towards those of us who are working and paying taxes. We are totally forgotten in budgets and cost of living packages. The rainy day is now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental and more. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, Fox News has agreed a 787 million euro settlement with Dominion um, in relation to the lawsuit over the coverage of vote rigging claims uh, during the US elections. Um, Dominion had argued that the Fox network had damaged its reputation by helping to peddle conspiracy theories about its equipment after the 2020 presidential election. Richard, this has been a long time coming. Um in some ways, it kind of got further than we thought. We thought maybe it would settle before it got into court. And it was just before those opening statements yeah. that actually the settlement came in the end. Yeah, it's interesting. There's two trains of thought. It was like, well, why didn't they settle this ages ago? Mm. Uh, Dominion didn't seem like they wanted it. So Dominion basically is a voting machine company. Yeah. Uh, and effectively, Fox News, in its coverage of the aftermath of the 2020 election, which Joe Biden won and Donald Trump lost had a load of people on, including Rudy Giuliani, who spoke about how these machines were all rigged and it was all a big conspiracy yeah. to unseat Donald Trump and to steal the president, presidency away from him, which obviously then culminated in the Stop the Steal stuff, all the stuff that we saw around January 6th. Mm. So 
this is really, this, this lawsuit is about the cost of disinformation and misinformation and conspiracy theories that we have seen, not just in terms of US politics in recent years, but across the world in recent years throughout the pandemic and other issues which come up from time to time. So the thought the you were making there about this should have been settled a long time ago, mm. Dominion were like, mm, we don't want you to just pay and not accept any responsibility for this. We want you to accept that you aired mistruths or lies, as they're known, um, to, 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 to a huge audience across the United States. But also, there was a feeling of disappointment from some uh, commentators and observers that this didn't get into court on the day. As you say, it's a last minute settlement. Mm. Having all of the dirty laundry aired about what was aired on shows like Tucker Carlson, who's probably the most prominent right wing commentator in US politics at the moment, that would have been a little bit of titillation, I suppose it would have been, to, to use that word, for, for people in, in, in the US media circles. But $788 million now it's is huge. what Fox News, uh, of course, owned by Rupert Murdoch, uh, is going to have to pay for this. But what is very interesting about this too is that this isn't the only uh, lawsuit that Fox News is facing on this. There is another uh, a company uh, by the name of Smartmatic, which is also doing a similar suit. It says, well, Dominion got this much, we're a bigger company, we were worse affected by this, so we're going to look for more. Wow. So if they're going to try and settle that one too, you're probably looking at over a billion dollars. Just It was the statement, Gavin, though, from Fox News that I thought was quite interesting. They said, we acknowledge the court's rulings, uh, rulings finding certain claims about Dominion to be false. They go on to say, we're hopeful that our decision to resolve this dispute with Dominion amicably instead of the acrimony of a divisive trial allows the country to move forward on these issues. And they go on to say that the uh, Fox has continued to commit to the highest journalistic standards. Uh, of course, that could be questionable. Um, but there's not really an apology there, Gavin, is there? There's no real I'm sorry from Fox on this. No, there's not. And what's more remarkable is that, you know, they're saying that the, the settlement allows the country to move on when, in fact, a, a large reason why the United States is as divided as it is is because Fox News so willingly and so enthusiastically embraced this idea that the machines were somehow conspiring to rig the election in Joe Biden's favour and against that of Donald Trump. So if they're trying to now present themselves as being some sort of great national unifying uh, ability or that they, they think that they're going to really going to harness the country together, but part of the reason why the country is so broken is partly because they themselves... Um, you know, gave such measure to, to the lies, basically, in something that never had anything to stand that up, and that they're really, if they were going to profess journalistic rigour, they really should have done so on the days when people were putting forward claims which were so clearly baseless and which didn't have anything behind them. A couple of other quick points. Firstly, um, you know, people might, it's, it's worth bearing in mind, you know, if you talk to any Irish journalist, we'll start to bore the tears off you about the way that the libel laws uh, work in Ireland and some of the ways in which you're hamstrung by them. But, like, libel law in America, like, you can get away with saying so much more because you have this constitution protected freedom of speech so for somebody to be able to prosecute you or to bring a claim against you for libel like what you've said has to be so far off the reservation for the courts to really give it a fair hearing so the idea that Fox did so or you know and were so petrified about the prospect of court that they settled the case for as much as they did speaks very highly as to the damage that was done to Dominion and three I really wonder what was going to be said in court that hadn't already come out in some of the pre-court filings because some of the documentation that was already filed to court as part yeah. of the discovery process where you, show, you saw you know, correspondence mm. and contact between anchors and journalists within Fox News acknowledging that what they were saying on air was untruthful and like having they didn't this battle believe of themselves. do we stay loyal to Donald Trump yeah. and the viewers? Yeah, yeah. That were, do we stay loyal to, to what our viewers want or do we stay loyal to the truth and the difficult thing that they were battling in the middle of all of that? But, so like, I do wonder exactly what would have been so embarrassing that Oh, loads, 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 loads. This was more about this was about ratings as well, the Richard wasn't it? This was about pressure to keep 
a certain type of viewer interested in what they were covering as well. There was an element of pressure there around 100%. That. They knew what their audience wanted mm. to hear and that was that Donald Trump won the election. That's very dangerous. Uh, not good if you're a news broadcaster. But I just just to give you, a, just for, on Gavin's point, what else would have come out here? I think what would have come out of it is the fact you would have Rupert Murdoch on the stand having to mm. testify about this. You would have had Tucker Carlson, all these other key Fox News figures forced to testify about this. That is very embarrassing. And if anybody has ever seen Rupert Murdoch testify previously about phone hacking in the UK, mm. um, at News UK, not very impressive. And it is damaging to the brand. Mm. I don't know how much more damaging, as, as Gavin is saying, that, that the brand could actually take in this instance, but it is embarrassing and it is something which anybody involved in Fox uh, and News Corporation would have wanted to avoid. The scale of this, though, News Group uh, earmarked 46 million pounds, about 127 million pounds in total to try and look after the phone hacking cases in the UK. Mm -hmm. The scale of this is off the charts in comparison if you're pu pushing that close to 800 million dollars. Mm -hmm. But it is also a lot less than Alex Jones has been forced to pay for defamation for the Sandy Hook mm -hmm. families as well, mm -hmm. which feeds into the same level of conspiracy yep. theory and misinformation and, and disinformation here on this. So some people some people were quite disappointed at the scale of this because I think I think um, Dominion were initially looking for 1.6 billion so yeah. it's about less than half of that yeah. so they haven't actually fully unveiled or disclosed what the all of the terms are and what requirements are on Fox so maybe maybe there's more to come out in the wash there too but when you talk about reputational damage right you know if I can I mean, yeah. sorry, sorry I thought there's a bit of a lag on the line so no, sorry if I'm sort of butting in but there's one other point just about the reputational damage is like is there that much damage to the brand when a lot of people if Fox is your primary and sole source of news thing, yeah. how much will you know will you, about yeah, all of this because like Fox and it was even so. notable on, on Tuesday when the um, you know, on Tuesday night when, when the settlement was announced and every Every other uh, rolling news network in the US with a certain level of schadenfreude was really mm. rolling in the fact that Fox had rolled over and agreed to pay the guts of a billion yeah. dollars to Dominion because of the life that it had broadcast in, tw in 2020. Fox weren't making any mention of that on their own channel at the mm. time. So if you watched Fox News or its companion channel Fox Business, which has a similar editorial outlook, you weren't hearing any mention of that. So yeah, it may have been mortifying if you had Rupert Murdoch and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity taking the stand uh, to admit that some of what they've been broadcasting was total hogwash. But whether the Vox, uh, the Fox viewership would have found anything about that, it's very difficult to imagine how much of them they'd actually seen because yeah. Fox weren't going to cover their own downfall. Exactly, that's mm. exactly what I was just about to say to you because you spend so much time, Richard, in the States with people who are Fox News viewers. Do you think they're going to be... Well, have they? Do you think they would have lost faith in their in their news? Yes, they already have. I think people people on Even the right... People in the, on the right view Fox News as a centrist organisation now. Wow. That's the actual, that's the great unsaid thing here is that Fox News, right. and Fox News has tried to shift away from the electoral sort of, uh, the, the big seal, the big lie sort of thing now over the last number of months and they've tried to move away from Donald Trump and their association with them, mm -hmm. bar Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson. Mm -hmm. The problem is there are now a number of other organisations which have been set up in the mould of Fox News but are way more extreme. There's right side broadcasting, there's Newsmax where Sean Spicer, our old friend, is on there as well. There are a million different places where people will get their news from. They don't want to get it from Fox anymore. Their ratings are starting to tip down a little bit. Yeah. Um, Fox News is now seen by the people who will hold the balance of power for Donald Trump as kind of an inconvenience and something which they don't really need to bother with as much as they would have done in previous cycles. So they sort of lost their place maybe in the landscape yeah. a little bit. A little bit. Definitely not, as, not, not, not what it used to be. It still, you know, it likes to court that power base uh, in the Republican Party. But... 
some of the, I mean, some of the zanier people are are, are moving away. They, they, they've had their fill of Fox News. They don't think Fox News is there anymore. Donald mm-hmm. Trump has even said this himself. Like he's sort of talked about, you know, Fox News has been really mean to me, so I'm leaving them behind. So wow. he's got he's got his other, you know, flavors of the month as well. So he won't be too worried about this. Tell you what, I can't imagine Logan Roy having paid $787 million to settle a defamation case, uh, which actually brings us very neatly back before we finish up this week uh, to some AOB, some outstanding business from last week, because not alone did we apparently uh, ruin succession for Richard's cameraman, Ronan Mack, uh, when he was in the International Media Centre in Dundalk. But it seems that we we managed to upset quite a few people for including spoilers last week. Yeah, a few people have been on to me uh, giving out uh, with a passion. that uh, the group chat is responsible for ruining their enjoyment of the succession, uh, which is obviously, it's, it's not our intention, I would say. Like, we no, did flag uh, we it, we did them. flag it. They we were warned them. Like, I, I specifically worry. said, but I suppose the, the issue, I suppose, is that we, what we didn't cop is that with a lot of people, if they're uh, listening to the audio version and they just scan through because they're sort of skipping over a few bits here and there, they that they the would have missed the couple of times where I specifically said, we're going to give you a spoiler in a couple of minutes. So they well, just skipped over all of that. The and then they just caught me ruining it for Ronan Mac and everyone else. Yeah. Uh, well, I was bang, Speaking of listening to the whole thing and not having spoilers, yeah. you weren't here. Yes, you're due a shoeing from Richard. Well, so I listened to the podcast last week because I obviously missed most of it. Like, apparently Richard was going to give me a shooing if yeah. I wasn't here. But we, so I wasn't here for the chat last week, but we had talked on the meeting about the fact that I don't really mind knowing what happens in things because then I like no, to watch how it unfolds. No, it wasn't that was the problem. It was the, the reading of the re- Wikipedia articles. While I'm watching it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was, that, that. actually our former, one of our former housemates actually said that he's, he's aware of other people who do this. Dave. And uh, it, 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 it fills him with bile. But um, Dave is a friend of ours who's an actual like arts and movie guy yeah, like he's yeah, a journalist yeah. who writes about like music and arts and everything so like Dave is a purist on these things I, I'd like to say that I've, I've had the next episode spoiled for me as well so this is just now going to be a weekly thing where I'm just getting spoiled on succession uh, so uh, I'm just as much a victim as anybody well, else well I'm only on season one episode five so, so I mean everything's a spoiler to me I've just anything point. that happened in episode four and everything the whole the whole rundown of it has been so I'm so early on in it. I feel like I, it's but a good I am loving it. Still, is it so? Obviously, I'm in season one now, right? Does it like is this? This is not the best. It gets better. Obviously, it does get better. I mean, yeah. it just gets better. Yeah, it, I'm finding it really good. Season by season, it does. It gets no, better, it escalates. Yeah. And like like we said at the very start, like they could have easily struggled along for another couple of seasons and and, and got somewhere with it. But the fact that they're condensing it into four quality yeah. seasons is it means it's probably really going to stand the test of time. It's phenomenal piece of work oh I've just swore can't do that again <laughs> I'm going to pick up myself sorry no, um, no we'll leave that we'll just leave that we'll leave that we're leaving that in Gavin Riley has oh, well. cursed on the right, podcast well. oh okay. my god I thought it would be me after the watershed bring it on incredible <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, listen, we'll I think... That. Sorry, everyone. No, yeah, yeah, it's fine, it's fine. Okay, well, listen, I think we've got to wrap it up for this week. I think Gav cursing has really been the, the nail in the coffin for this podcast. <laughs> we can't beat week. that. We may as well Before wrap it up it escalates. It's, it, it's, even, it's even the thought of succession. It's just, it's so profane that I just got into the habit without even realising. I just actually thought that I would have been the first one to curse on this. It's been 12 months. I can't believe it was Gav. How fantastic. Incredible. No tap apology next week from Gavin Riley on the show, so... Totally, totally. Um, okay, well, thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks so much. Uh, thanks, Renee's Richard. Chambers, Zara. political correspondent Gavin Riley and cameraman Mark in Belfast. Bye everyone. Uh, thank you to Ross, Maxine, Rory, all the team in the gallery, everyone who works in the group chat, really appreciate it. And we will be back again next week. Bye. Bye.